0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Was I singing the whole time with that on? Because I turned it off when I walked up here then. Oh, no. Please come back to Cornerstone next Sunday. But not here at 11 o'clock at Monday Point. I won't sing there. Uh, that actually happened one time where I left my mic on here and I think Danny Wilkin, Danny, are you in here today? Danny, I think, is it you who left me on and it came through the speakers? I was very embarrassed. The recording, be the recording will be available. We'll be streaming on iTunes and a number of other sites. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I had a bunch of projects, Jimmy and I had a bunch of projects around the house. And you know how it is when you have a whole bunch of projects you just can't get to? It's just sometimes better just to focus on doing a bunch at once. So it took a week off to do this. And it happens to be the week that we win the Disney thing. And uh, so Jordan gets to come up here and make fun of me publicly with no response on my part. So uh, I will only say, and it's not really a response to Jordan, it's more of a, a public confession that I have spent, to my shame, the past two years, three years, she's like, I don't know what you're going to say, public, or uh, privately to my family, ridiculing Disney. Private. It wasn't so private, you're right, there were moments where it was also public, <laughs> Jim Gaffigan the comedian he has a bit on Disney that is my favorite and I use as my like I would use as my ammunition as to why we shouldn't go to Disney. I was like, you know, it's it's worthless. He says, "You want to know what it's like going to Disney?" He goes, "Imagine you're standing in line at the DMV." <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and then he says, "No wait, it's in July, so imagine you're standing in line at the DMV on the surface of the sun." So I've been using this and playing it. We've listened to it I don't know how many times, and then we go and win a trip. So hey, we're going to Disney. Very exciting. Uh, Not only that, but uh, so last week Chris preached, and Chris decided to take the opportunity to get up here to ridicule me for wanting to have one Sunday to say goodbye to Mark. He got a Sunday to say goodbye to Mark, yet he comes up here and he's like, well, Stacy wants to do this. We're going to let him come up one more time. I've spent three years, Chris, doing this, and I can't have one Sunday? Thank you. Mark, yes, thank you, I am. Mark 1, we're going to read just the first verse, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer as we end this three year study of the Gospel of Mark. Mark began his Gospel with these words the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather again this morning to read and study your word. Um, I think it's important for us to remember that these times in your word are, they're not one and done things. Um, Your word is powerful. Your word can change us in a moment, in an instant. Your spirit can take it and apply it to our hearts in any context or situation, change us in a multitude of ways. And yet we often recognize, even think back to our study in Genesis, that you are a God who works through process and progress. And oftentimes you're working in us through your word. It doesn't come in those one and done moments. It comes over time as we methodically plod through and study and learn and look and, and wait and listen. And you have given us that opportunity for these past three years in Mark's gospel, and we are so thankful for it. And so as we end our time in this study this morning. I pray that you will be glorified. Spirit, work in us. Speak to us. Help us to see our part in this story so that as we go out of here, we recognize that the story of Jesus isn't done. It continues in each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to show you a picture of something. This is a picture of the very first page of my very first sermon in Mark's Gospel. Uh, As you can see, the date was May 26, 2013. Today is April 24, 2016, so it took us exactly two years and 11 months to work through this. If I was to scroll down this page a little bit, I began that sermon by um, recounting how many sermons I had preached in our other sermon series up to that point. So in Colossians when we went through, or excuse me, First John, when we went through that, uh, I preached 50 sermons. In Colossians, I preached 61. In Genesis, 1 through 11, we had 54. I will allow one person and one person only. First person who says it gets the prize. There's no prize. Uh, who wants to take a guess as to how many sermons I preached? I'm not counting Chris right this moment, but I preached from Mark over the past two years and 11 months. Anyone want to give me a number? I said one person. What's up with that? what would you say, Wendy? 122. 122. No, not quite. 90. A little off. 90 on that one. Chris preached another 10, we believe. So the total sermon count and mark hit exactly 100. Uh, It has been quite a ride for me, particularly over these past three years. And today is actually kind of bittersweet in a way. On the one hand, I feel very satisfied that we accomplished what it was that we started out to accomplish. And I just went back through some of my sermons and kind of wrote down some things. Uh, In my very first sermon, I began by saying that it seemed to me that we as Christians spend a lot of time talking about Jesus, but very little time actually sitting at his feet and listening to him. And, you know, I want to be careful with that we, yes, we learned a lot about Jesus in our three previous studies there in 1 John and Colossians and Genesis. But just in my heart at that time, as we were coming out of Genesis and get ready to start in Mark, I just really had this desire to, to stop and sit, to sit before him and listen to him. Does that make sense? And again, hope I'm communicating what I mean here. We learned about Jesus in those other studies and I would very much agree with the byline of the Jesus Storybook Bible that we've given away for years here, that every story in scripture whispers his name. I'm I'm wholeheartedly on that. But, But I just wanted us to see directly and personally that he really is the central figure of human history and of God's revelation that we have said he is for so long. And, and I wanted us along the way in that process of seeing all those things to just be able to walk down the dusty roads of Galilee and Judea with him. I wanted us to sit on the, the hillsides in the grass and listen to him preaching and teaching to the crowds. Uh, I wanted us to stand there on the busy streets and in those dimly lit houses and listen to him talk and watch him heal the sick and cast out demons and all the amazing things he did. I, I wanted us to be... Uh, sad and confused a little bit when we stood around the cross and watched the the one whom we knew to be the son of god die only to be amazed and maybe even somewhat taken aback 3 days later when we walk in with the women into this musty dark tomb and find it to be empty and so it's been a <laughs> it's been quite a journey along the way and i feel satisfied that we've addressed all of that now so many of us have grown up hearing these stories reading them uh, watching them in movies and television shows whatever it may be that i feel like we have taken it for granted or at least there's the real danger that we've taken it for granted and i hope that that's not the case for you anymore i hope that going out of mark you will never read the gospels never read the stories of jesus in the same way hopefully this has been a good experience for you on the other hand And again, just speaking very personally to you here, because I can, uh, today's a little bit sad for me, too, in its own way. And I know that might be a little bit um, hard for you to understand in some respects, but but I'm going to miss Mark. You know, it's been a long time now that we've been here. It's been a season of my life, three years. I was thinking about it three years ago. Chris did this last week. Three years ago, both of my children were in children's church. Now both of my children sit in here. I have a teenager now. I didn't have a teenager when I started. We've been in Mark longer than... How many of you were not here when we started, Mark? Raise your hand. Okay, so see? (laughs) It's been a long, long time. Um, And so this is kind of weird for me in a way. I've noticed over the years that there's sort of three phases I go through when I'm preaching through a book. There's uh, uh, the beginning phase or the, the start of it where... I'm kind of uncomfortable still in the book. I'm trying to learn it. I don't really know it well yet. I don't know the author well. so I need to. And for me, it's really about knowing the author. I, I want to know him. I want to understand how does he think? How does he argue? How does he explain things and teach? And so I, I need to get that, and I don't really get it just yet, and I'm trying to learn. And so I've got this like beginning phase where preaching and studying is kind of hard, and, and I don't really like that beginning phase. But then after a while, I get into a second phase where, Finally, it's starting to click, and I'm starting to understand who this person is and how do they write and how do they argue. That happened with John, and I started to get John and figure him out. And I could start to predict what he was going to think and say and how he would word things, and that's really neat because then everything's flowing really good. And then you get done with that, and you got to switch gears to Paul, and oh, I got to redo that now. Get get my mind around Paul now to Moses now to Mark, and so that second phase where you finally get it, it's kind of fun, and then this third phase hits. When you're all done with the series, when I'm all done with the series, and I sit down at my desk the next day and I go, okay, now what? Like, (laughs) what do I do now? Like, I I don't even know what to do uh, in those in-between times because I I sort of miss it. And it's almost like going through withdrawal of sorts. And it sounds weird, but if you think about it like this, over the past three years, outside of my family, I have spent more time with Mark than I have with any of you in this room. I know that sounds weird especially since he's dead. But I feel like the kid from The Sixth Sense, you know, like, I see dead people, you know? <laughs> so I spend my week with dead people. I, 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 I've sat and just interacted with him for 150 weeks, and all of a sudden, I don't have him anymore. And so it's kind of weird. It's like we're no longer friends. Like he went off to college or something, and we're we're done now. So it's... uh. It's just strange, so I admit it. That's weird. It's my reality, though. I've hung out with a dead guy for, for three years, and today I'm saying goodbye. So I've, uh, I've thought a lot. I've thought a lot over these past three or four months how I wanted to end this, um, and what I wanted to say to you this morning as we walk away from this book. And as you well know by now, we actually finished Mark on Easter Sunday. That was when we went through Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And that is the end of Mark's gospel. The next Sunday, we were in Matthew as we were looking at um, uh, or observing the Lord's table together. And then two weeks ago, I I tried to explain to you why verses 9 through 20 are not actually a part of Mark's gospel. And I hope that was helpful. And, And as we did all of that, I tried to acknowledge The reality that the probable reason why those verses 9 through 20 were added to Mark's gospel is because the ending that Mark gives us there in verse 8 is not very aesthetically pleasing to us. And if you will now, turn to Mark 16. We're going to come back to verse 1. We're actually going to end in Mark 1, verse 1. But just for a second, I want to go back to Mark 16 and reread the final verses here. These are verses 1 through 8 just to remind us of how Mark ended his gospel. Look at verse 1 there in chapter 16. He writes, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother, James, and Salome bought bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Because remember, on Friday they didn't have time. They just got him off the cross and they were trying to get him in the tomb before sundown came because that was the Sabbath. So now Sunday morning they're heading back. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, They went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, "'Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?' And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, "'Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee.' There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. And I don't know about you, but it just, it just doesn't feel right, does it? It feels like something is missing here. It leaves you with a number of unanswered questions, particularly for people maybe who don't know the story of Jesus or they're not clear on what's going on. For example, did the women go and tell the disciples? Did they overcome their fear? Uh, or, or did the disciples, if they did go tell them, did, 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 did the disciples see Jesus just as the angel had told him? I mean, is he really alive? Notice that by the time you get to verse 8, you don't see the resurrected Jesus. He's not in those verses. You're told he's been raised from the dead, but you don't actually see him yourself, so is he really alive? Or, you know, what about what happens next? Does the kingdom of God come as Jesus had, had seemed indicated? What's What's going on? In other words, what is the rest of the story? That's the question that when you come to the end of verse 8, you're like, hmm, what's going on here? Why is it in like this? What's the, what's the next part? But, but may I suggest to you this morning that we are asking the wrong question the question isn 't what is the rest of the story The question and this may surprise you is what exactly is the story? What exactly is the story that we 've been reading all along here and this is this is how I want to end mark i don 't I don't have a big sermon for you today in fact um, it 's probably going to be relatively short compared to many of the other ones we 've had in Mark over the past three years but I just want to end on a very simple thought that I think will tie everything together very nicely and send us out from our time in Mark with an understanding of Jesus and Mark's gospel that puts everything in its proper perspective. Uh, When it comes to the ending of Mark's gospel, I'd like for you to consider the fact that we, all of us, you and I, are far too influenced by our cultural understanding of stories Now, you may never have thought about what your cultural understanding of a story is, but you have one. You have a way that you like to read stories and like to hear them and ways you like for them to be structured. In modern culture, we like our stories in a particular way. Uh, We like for them to begin with a very clear introduction once upon a time, in the beginning, something like that. And then we like certain key elements within the story, like plot, uh, uh, plot direction, character development, tension and resolution. We definitely... Definitely like resolution. It was weird along the way. In Mark, one of the most helpful things to me was watching Downton Abbey. And it wasn't actually watching Downton Abbey. It was watching. Don't laugh. It was watching. Uh, it was yeah. It was watching an interview with Julian Fellows, who is the creator of Downton Abbey. They were interviewing him about how he went about telling the story, and they they were asking him about a particular character. I don't remember which. And they were saying why. Why is it that bad stuff keeps happening to whoever? Like, every time you turn around, you you just want them to be happy, and they never are. Something always is going on. And his response was so insightful, and it has so affected my understanding of stories, of narrative, even of the, the way the scriptures present stories, that I'll probably never forget it. He said, and I'm going to paraphrase him, he said, well, yes, recognize, though, that when characters finally get their happy endings, the story ends. In modern storytelling, we actually love tension. We watch stories for tension. When the the tension is resolved and everything's happy and everyone's good, that's when it says the end and the credits roll. So if you give people a happy ending early, you're done. (laughs) That was his whole answer. And I'm like, you know, he's right. We watch for tension. We like watching people's problems and hoping they get the happy ending. When they finally do get it, then we're done with them. Um, you know, Mark isn't exactly built this way. Yes, there's a resolution, and, but it doesn't really fit our, our modern understanding of how this works. But back to the stories in general, once revolu- uh, resolution has been achieved, we typically expect some big, satisfying ending and then just to be done with the story. Mark uh, uh, doesn't do any of this, really. His, his story doesn't just end abruptly. If you look back in chapter one at some point later on, you realize that it began pretty abruptly as well. It began with a quote from Isaiah and the appearance of a guy named John the Baptist, and all of a sudden we're running. We're running. And then, of course, it does it abruptly as well. There is a a general plot line to his story, but it doesn't follow the pattern we're used to. Mark seems to be teaching through his stories, not just simply telling stories. And so that kind of confuses us. There is, of course, a big point of tension at the end. That's the crucifixion. And it does seem to be resolved in chapter 16. And yet it's not fully resolved because of how that ends so abruptly and also because of the fact we never see Jesus. And and so all of this, uh, it just kind of bothers us. And I'll be the first to admit it, it. I was troubled by this. I sat there scratching my head trying to figure out what in the world are you doing, Mark? what are you doing ending like this? And it was at some point during this time of head scratching that that something I read in David Garland's commentary on Mark caused me to go back and reconsider a word that I had just taken for granted very, very early on in our study. And it's here that we're going back now to Mark chapter one, verse one, because the word that we need to go back and reconsider now at the end is this word, beginning. Now, typically, when you and I see the word beginning, we think of the idea of starting. If I tell you that you came in at the beginning of a movie, that means you came in at the start of the movie. If I tell you that I'm beginning a new phase of life, that tells you that I'm starting some new phase of life. And the Greek word that Mark uses here for beginning can certainly mean that. There are many times in the New Testament where this word is used to refer to the, to the start of something, and that was what I assumed it was doing here. I assumed at the start or the beginning of our study of Mark that this word was referring to the start or beginning of Mark's story. But as I can now see, coming at the end of this three years later and looking back, as I can now see so clearly, that understanding did not fit the context. I mean, just look here at what he doesn't say. He doesn't open his account by saying, the beginning of my story about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, had he said that, the beginning of my story about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then clearly he would have been using the word beginning in the way that we typically think about it, just to refer to the start of something. But that's not what he says. Rather, he says here, the beginning of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, did the good news of Jesus Christ not begin until the baptism of of John You know, as you think back on this, wasn't the the plan, the eternal plan of God from before time began to send Jesus to take our place to die for our sins? So what exactly is the beginning, the start of the gospel? See, if I ask that question now, I get kind of confused, a little bit muddy, because I don't think that's exactly what Mark is referring to. So so maybe then Mark isn't using this word to refer to the start of Of the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, if it's not referring to the start, then what exactly is it referring to? Well, this is where Mark's word choice here is incredibly, incredibly important. You see, the word he uses here can refer to the start of something, but just as commonly in the New Testament, it refers not to the timing of something, but to the importance of something. In other words, when it's used like this, it refers to rank, not sequence. It shows the importance, that whatever it is referring to is the first and most important thing if you were to put them in some kind of a list. And so if we read it that way, Mark begins his story with an affirmation that the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the first and most important news or story that we will ever hear. That it is, as we have said before, the story that gives meaning all other stories. And it was, it was during that moment of realization um, that the abrupt beginning and ending of Mark finally clicked into focus for me. And it sounds weird to say three years after the fact, I'm like finally understanding something a little bit differently, but we always are understanding things differently. So I don't know why that would shock anyone. But, but finally, finally, I felt like I could see the power of what Mark had done. And to show you what became so clear to me, let me, for the very last time, show you a slide that we have seen many times before here in Mark. You ready? Intercalation, right? It's a good slide. Uh, I'm going to miss this slide. It's been around longer than some of you have been here. Um, Last elder meeting, Caleb said we uh, we should make it an honorary member of the church, but we're not going to. Now, For anyone who hasn't seen this slide before, let me quickly explain to you what this is, because this matters very much for what we're doing this morning. Intercalation is a storytelling device. It is not specific to the Bible. It's not a theological term. It's just a a rhetorical concept. It's a way to tell stories. It has been used by all kinds of people from ancient times to modern times. It's still used today, so it's it's just a device. Intercalation is when an author or a storyteller sets out to tell a particular story, we'll call it story A, but in the middle of that story, in order to explain it and help you understand the full significance of it, they insert a second somewhat unrelated story perhaps, we'll call that story B before finally coming back at the end and finishing story A. Okay, that's intercalation. If you weren't here for my very first explanation and you want a good example in modern times, think of Saving Private Ryan. In Saving Private Ryan, the real story, the main story, is about an old man going to honor those who died for him. So the the scene begins, the movie begins with an old man walking through a graveyard and falling on his knees before a a tombstone, and the camera zooms in, and then when it zooms out, it's D-Day. It's gone back in time, and you see what's happened in the past before finally at the end coming back to that graveyard and seeing the man standing there or kneeling there before the grave honoring his friends who died for him. So so that's intercalation. It was used by by, uh, that movie there in telling the story. And normally, if not always, when this is done, Story B is what gives meaning or significance to story A. Story A may be the main story. In Saving Private Ryan, the main story is about honoring those who sacrificed all. But in order to give significance to that, story B is, is told to help you rightly understand what's happening in story A. And the reason we're so familiar with the slide in Mark is because Mark has used this technique over and over and over again to make his points throughout his gospel. He really seems to like this particular storytelling technique, and it was through recognizing this and um, looking at his abrupt ending and looking at his abrupt beginning and then reconsidering the use of the word beginning in verse uh, 1 here to refer to rank, not time, that I realized that what Mark has been doing all along in his gospel is telling us story B. I'm going to let that sink in for just a moment. What Mark has been doing all along in his gospel is he has been telling us story B. Well, if Mark is story B, then what is story A? Well, story A has to be everything else that God is doing, has done, will do in this world. The story of Jesus is giving meaning to all of that. The story of Jesus is helping us understand everything else we see and do. God's eternal plan for this world and everyone in it is the main story. It always has been. God has been unfolding a plan since before time began. But in order to understand that story, it is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives meaning and significance to that eternal plan, past, present, and future. Mark's gospel, Mark's story, doesn't have an ending because it isn't the main story, and the main story isn't done yet. Just as the story of Jesus didn't begin at the baptism of John, guess what? It doesn't end at the resurrection either. We ourselves, folks, We, ourselves, are the continuation of Mark's story. This is the crazy point of it. When you begin to understand and see what he's doing, we are the continuation. What Mark has been doing is just helping us understand the full significance of what God has been, is, and will be doing in this world through the death of his son 2,000 years ago. And this is why I said at the beginning that we've learned a lot about Jesus in Genesis and Colossians and 1 John. It's because it's Jesus that gives significance to those stories. It's why no matter where we turn in the scriptures, we're going to keep finding Jesus because he's the one who gives significance and understanding to those stories. This is why he is the central figure of human history. This is why he is the main character in God's plan for this world. And this is why, as I wrote in that very first sermon, that, and I didn't quote this earlier, I left it for here, I said this is why we needed to come to a book like Mark again. Because the stories Mark tells us are far more than just stories. They are the story that gives meaning to all other stories in human history. And that includes our story as a church and your story individually. I think about us as Cornerstone. Again, I kind of, for me, sermon series, I, I view them as seasons for myself and also seasons for our church as well. And I think about where we were three years ago when we started and where we are now and how God has worked in us and changed us over these past three years. I think about specifically ways in which Mark has changed us, the elders particularly, thinking about things we've been talking about and thinking about and praying about. And I I couldn't even begin to go through all the ways that God has used his word in our hearts over these past three years to allow his story to give meaning and significance to ours. Folks, it's true for us personally. And the question is, do we allow the story of Jesus to give that meaning and significance to our stories? When you suffer, do you allow the suffering of Jesus on your behalf to give meaning and significance to that? As you consider your dreams and hopes and goals for the future, does the story of Jesus inform that, change that, alter that, direct that in any way? Think about your purpose for living. What are you living for in the first place? Does the story of Jesus have any place in that? If not, then something's wrong. Are we ready to go out and continue the story of what God is doing in this world by working with all the energy he gives us to proclaim Christ to everyone so that we can present everyone perfect in Jesus? In your bulletin, Jordan put the quote from David Garland that is so helpful. It says, The gospel of Mark leaves us with unfinished business to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. The ending, which is not an ending, becomes a never-ending story as the baton passes on to us to join in the race and spread the news. Mark's stunning ending raises the question, who will tell the story? His gospel is the account of the beginning of the gospel. We now join in its continuation. I hope so. I pray that we do, and we end this study with this challenge to go out and be the ending that Mark intended and that God can use for his glory to spread the name of Jesus to the end of the earth. Will you bow your heads in prayer? Father, thank you for sending your son. As Chris reminded us last week, he is, he is unlike any other man. He came proclaiming a kingdom that was far different than anything that anyone had expected. And it's his coming and his kingdom that gives meaning to everything else, that helps us understand the past and how you've worked in the past and the way you've orchestrated events in human history. It's his coming that helps us understand today and and what you're doing with us now and how we should be living now, and it is his coming that should direct our future. Everything that you have planned for this world, to, to call a people for yourself, to exalt yourself amongst them, is dependent on what you have done through your son. And we have seen that. We have been reminded of that. Mark has been very careful, very faithful to show us story B so that we might rightly understand story A. And I pray that as we go out from here, as we go out from this study, as we enter a new season now here at Cornerstone, that we will not forget the lessons we've learned. We'll never look at Jesus the same way again will recognize that the kingdom that we are living for is not our own. It it does not belong to Cornerstone. This is the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' kingdom. We're merely servants. Help us to go out and embrace weakness, to look for the lowly, to love those who are unloved by others, to do all the things that we have seen Jesus do because we want to be the continuation of Mark's gospel and of the story of Jesus. Jesus, you live on. You were not in that tomb that morning. The women did get their courage and they did go tell the disciples and we are standing and sitting here today because of that. And so may we go out and live now for you. May we be your body. Direct us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.